This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Okay, so uh, welcome to the, uh, to the CMS Colloquium series, and uh, today we have the uh, distinct honor of uh, having Dennis Dyack, uh, CEO, uh, President, Founder of Silicon Knights um, up in Canada. Uh, St. Catherine's. Correct. And um, yeah, he's uh, made uh, his company has been responsible for some amazing games that largely involve uh, gods being very angry at each other, um, <laughs> and uh, um, but which includes you know the legacy of Cain, uh, uh, Blood Omen, and uh, Eternal Darkness. Metal Gear Twi- uh, Solid Twin Snakes, which was a collaboration with Konami and, 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 and Nintendo, and currently developing uh, Two Human uh, uh, with Microsoft and another project with Sega that, that we don't uh, know much about yet. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the Silicon Knights has been around since 1992, and, um, and uh, Dennis is well-known uh, in the industry for... Speaking the, pr- the 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 truth about you know what what what's actually going on and what and and giving his opinion about where this where this medium can go, um, and uh, I'm very very happy to welcome you here to MIT to speak to comparative media stu- studies. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> thank you. So I guess I'll start off really, really quickly was saying this particular idea is a, is a, a metamorphosis of, of just discussions and talks that I've had with Dr. Barry Grant, who is um, um, a, he is the director of the Department of um, Film and Popular Culture at Brock University, and Dr. John Mitterer, who's a psychologist. Silicon Knights is a big believer in academia. Uh, actually, Barry and John have been uh, collaborating and working with Silicon Knights for over 10 years now. If you look back on the credits for Eternal Darkness, you'll see them there too. So um, just wanted to get that out there. So this is, this is really all of our thoughts sort of combined. The, so just <laughs> really quickly for, for, uh, for, for those who, who may not know much about Silicon Knights or myself, um, I do get in trouble a lot. I tend to say things as they are. It's, it's sometimes provocative and not popular. Um, but before I start, I just want to give everyone an idea of how sort of my thought process goes through on a daily basis. And I, I took this picture uh, because it really represents a, a lot of me. And this is what I call the wall of the industry. And the wall of the industry is the three things that I think you need to survive. Um, and you have creativity, which I think is at the highest level. You have education, which I think is a tool and you should always use. And then at the bottom, you have a sword for warfare. And these are all necessary tools of the trade. Um, and, uh, you know, Silicon Knights, um, um, I also think it's almost like a happy meter. When we're at the top, we're happy. When we, well, it, actually, I'm really happy with academia, too, so maybe that's not so true. But, you know, you try to avoid warfare where possible, but, um, you know, it's in, in some cases very necessary. Uh, and just a little bit of background. Um, these are, I tried to put slides up with the least amount of words possible. Um, these, are, these are, this is our sort of history in, in our games. We started out doing real-time strategy games 
before real-time strategy games were popular. Our first games were, were, were hybrid real-time strategy games, very much like uh, games like the Total War series, where it's like a chess game, uh, sorry, a risk game, and then you fight real-time for the countries. Our first game, actually, which was done on the Atari, the Amiga, uh, and the, and the uh, PC, won multiplayer game of the year split-screen before the days of the Internet, uh, from Computer Gaming World, actually. And it's ancient. And I thought back then the Amiga was going to win, win, uh, win out and be the dominant uh, piece of hardware. And then I learned really quickly that the best technology rarely wins, actually. Um, you know, and then from there we went on to do uh, Fantasy Empires, which was our first D&D license. It was an original title, very similar to the first game. And Dark Legions, which is where, um, in some sense, was a homage to Brenda Laurel's Computers as Theater. I actually set up the whole game like a theater uh, stage. And... Uh, um, it's really a lot like Archon in that sense. And, but at that point, uh, we really bridged and went a separate direction. We, for, we did this marketing campaign where we had these little playing cards where we wrote these stories for video games. And at that point, we had so much fun writing those stories that I was like, let's do this type of game instead of these strategy games. I think it'll be much better for us. We're getting a lot more enjoyment out of it. And then we started doing very heavily content-based games when we did Legacy of Cain, which is the game we're first known for. A lot of people think it's our first game, but it's actually our fourth game. Um, and that was done in 1996. It was our first console game. We moved from the PCs to the consoles because we thought the PC market in 1994 was doing very poorly. And uh, <laughs> is it going on its own? How did that happen? Um, how do I go back? I didn't touch anything. Uh-oh. There we go. Sorry, I don't know how that happened. Um, and um, so we started doing heavily, uh, heavily based content games with Legacy of Kane. Uh, Legacy of Kane, I don't know if it's well known, but there's actually no text in that game. We did, we tried to create an RPG with no text. So if you look at that game, I don't think there's any text anywhere. And we used the, the medium of the, of the DVD in a way that we thought would be different and help move the medium forward. Um, then we did Eternal Darkness with Nintendo. We became a, a second party developer exclusive to Nintendo. I tried to learn Japanese. I got to, I would say, a university level, not, not fluent enough to speak uh, casually, but uh, enough to understand some words. Um, and um, with Eternal Darkness, we actually tried to create a game in which storytelling was uh, really mixed in with gameplay in, in a way that made sense. So when, I don't know if there's any hardcore players here, but if you finish Eternal Darkness three times, we actually explain replay through the story through multiple dimensions. And um, it's very Call of Cthulhu or um, uh, what's, what's, who's the author? Um, what's that? Lovecraftian. Lo well, Lovecraftian, but no, um, Michael Moorcock with Eternal Champion and that kind of, that kind of idea. Um, and so then we went on to do Metal Gear Solid, a collaboration with Kojima-san, uh, Miyamoto-san, and us. And it's, it was our first unoriginal product. We did it really as a personal favor to Miyamoto-san and Iwata-san when we we're, when were doing that. Now we're doing the Two Human Trilogy with Microsoft. And um, in a lot of these talks that I do, especially if it's at a conference, I tend not to show our games off at all because I'm really, really hard set against trying to sell your product um, in the guise of a talk. But since there's absolutely no media here, I feel pretty comfortable, so I'm going to show some Two Human. Um, uh, yeah, well, yeah. And... Uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really disappointed at, at some level at the way GDC has been going. And uh, I started calling it, much to the worry of our PR uh, agents, and they're worried that we're going to get blackballed now. But um, I called the game demo, I, I was calling GDC the game demo convention this year because there's very little substance 
It's more like a convention, and, and they're, they're rejecting talks that they shouldn't reject. Um, and they're, they're just, there's no, a lot of the talks are looked by my piece of software, whether it be middleware, and it's really, really disappointing. So, um, but in this case, you're going to see some, you're going to see some to human, but I'm not going to try to sell it to you. I'm just going to try to show you how we've kind of evolved. And then we're doing a game with Sega we haven't announced yet. So that's, that's a little bit. We're 175 people now. We started off as two. So if you want a little bit more background on that, I'm happy to talk with people afterwards about it. So the seventh art. And Canudo, he was uh, considered one of the first film theorists. Uh, a lot of people think he was. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have enough background on it to say for sure. It's probably something more for Barry to talk about than myself. But um, in, in, a, in a book uh, called The Reflections on the Seventh Art, he basically, um, he basically argued that cinema was a synthesis of you know, the art forms, uh, really the, the spatial art forms with the temporal art forms, and it really created itself as a new art form. So when, when we talk about video games, Silicon Knights, we believe they're the eighth art form. And rather than, rather than just be moving pictures, we're saying gameplay is a new synthesis, nonlinear interactivity. And we think that all of the art forms are absolutely integral to making video games now. As a matter of fact, so much so um, that I don't know how many people have heard, but we've created a program at the local university called the Interactive Arts and Sciences. And it absolutely is, is all about creating multidisciplinary degrees, accredited degrees, where you can learn how to create interactive media. It's very, very important in our eyes. And the program just started. I think it's in its second year now. It's going to move towards a master's in probably a couple years. Um, but this, we think, is incredibly important. So what I'm going to do, rather than go into um, a lot of detail, is just start showing how we create games from this kind of perspective and show why we think that this is actually true. So one of the art forms, according to Canuto, is architecture. And this is a shot from, from Two Human. Could I, could I turn down the lights a bit? Is it possible? Where, where can I do that? Just two? Is that too dark, or is that OK? That's all right? OK, everyone can see that better now? OK. Um, so architecture is one of the art forms. And so here's a really good example of some, an, an architecture shot in Two Human. Two Human is a game where you play the Norse god Baldr, charged with the defense of mankind against an army of machines trying to wipe us all out. It is a retelling of Norse mythology from a cyclic history perspective. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of words, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work as well as a marketing spiel, so I generally tend not to say it that much um, in, 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 in press venues, but the idea is, imagine that history is going in cycles, and we go through these techno technological uh, high points where we kill ourselves, and then we go back into the Stone Age, and it, it keeps recycling. So we're saying that Norse mythology, the root, this, this story that we're telling is actually the roots of Norse mythology. Everything we know about Norse mythology are our basis, basis from the story. So we did a lot of research on Norse mythology. And if this is all going to be Norse gods, and that's the Norse god Baldr right there, 
Um, gods are cybernetically enhanced humans. There's not really anything magical about them. But if we're going to do research into Norse mythology, uh, the Norse, Norse really liked boats, a lot of boats. And if you look at Azir, and this is, this, is, this is Azir in the central hub of the game, if you look really carefully, that whole main foyer is the inside of a boat hall. So the ideas that the art directors take when we're doing our thing should reinforce the content at every level. And when we're talking about taking the different art forms and applying it to different, uh, from different perspectives in order to create nonlinear interactive games, we really try to think about these things as much as we can. So the architecture in the game, we have some architects um, who really, really think about this stuff all the time. All the colors, what's it look like? You know, how are the Norse ruins going to be represented? Those type of things. So there's, there's architecture. Sculpture. Sculptures are just another, another example of representing, um, representing one of the art forms. And a lot of sculpture, in, in our eyes, is, is sort of things in motion. And in this case, we have sort of these Nordic knights. They're not really true Nordic, but quasi-Nordic. Um, it's kind of science fiction quasi-Nordic. Um, a lot of them, a lot of guys at Silicon Knights kind of call it Caltech. Um, but um, really, the idea is, again, is to present these themes where people can just look at it and understand that they, don't, they, can, they can really recognize the archetypes, I guess is a better word, recognize the archetypes of, of what we're trying to show and just learn through osmosis that this is the type of world it is, very consistent. And we do, that, we do that through sculpture just as much as we do through architecture. Painting is another, another one. And here, uh, this is just a, a, a shot of one of the areas that you'll see actually in the demo. But this particular shot are the colors and, and the lighting values, the reflections, the, the, the direction of the sun. All of those things were painstakingly you know, worked out by the artists in that room or that particular area was probably iterated upon for about a year and a half before we got that particular look, just like a painter would paint a painting. And these, these types of ideas and the, the sort of ideas that go behind the perfect picture are things that you have to think about when you're creating video games as well. Music. I like this one. be quiet for a minute. So, the music for Two Human, that was authentic Norse, and was written, it was all created SK, but we had a, a, a 31-piece choir who could sing in authentic Norse, where we had to go to Europe to get that done, and we had a 41-piece orchestra, and the idea, once again, was to create something that was both modern 
left an impression of what we were trying to say. The game, and you notice that that song was, in my eyes, pretty reflective. And Too Human was created, and it's called Too Human. You're a cybernetic god. You're charged with the defense of mankind against this army of machines. You're always being told that you're too human. And you need to replace your body parts with cybernetic implants to become better and stronger. And the ideas and notions of the effects of technology on society are the reasons why I think Too Human is such an important game. People always take technology and they say, how it's going to help you and how it's going to be better for you. So we think we need to ask the questions, is technology always better for us, which we think it's not? And if you replace your arm with a cybernetic arm, what does that say about your humanity? Should you do it if you could do it? And are you a better person? Or what defines the human soul? And in this case, you know, the song laments a lot. And really, we're talking about the survival of mankind at a metaphoric level, are we talking about the evasiveness of technology? Or are we talking about these armies of machines that are trying to wipe us out? Those are the kind of things that we want people to think about, and again, reinforced in the music. Dance. <laughs> Best I could do. I'm not going to dance. <laughs> So that was, that was a short scene from the, one of the intros into Human. Um, and um, in film, I always think that we can learn a lot from film and the idea or the seventh art form. There's this notion of voiceover generally being very bad. And it's generally the ideas are if you have to explain to someone what the world's about, then you're somehow missing uh, and you're not using all the tools that you have within film. So with here... Um, Balder is, is, is in the middle of a fight scene and it's in slow motion. And this is what I equate to some of the dance ideas. Uh, for those who are very familiar with Norse mythology, Balder is considered the Christ figure in Norse mythology. So he was in a crucifixion pose as he was trying to destroy some of the, um, try to destroy some of the drones there. And that's a big thing in Norse mythology. And it's people, uh, I, I think from Norway, are, there's a big concern that it was contaminated by you know, some of the Christian priests as they, as, as they wrote the Edda. And, uh, but in either case, um, no words needed to be said there, but those are the type of ideas that you try to bring across, very much like in film, and this is how dance can really affect things in, in video games. Hmm. What? Technology never works. There we go. So poetry. Hear me, all ye hallowed beings, both high and low, of high-knowledged children. Thou will, O Father, that I will set forth the fates of the world as first I recall. So that's, 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 that's the, I think, the opening line from the Edda. 
Um, and as we are trying to retell Norse mythology, we want to set that out really clearly in the beginning of the trilogy. We have an orbital string in the background. You can see Azir Corporation uh, looks like a bunch of boats. Hopefully it's a bit dark there. But um, these, these, once again, an, an illustration of the, of the art form. So in our eyes, um, video games are emerging as a dominant art form now. And there's so much, there's so much potential. And, but it's, it's, much, it's, it's much different than film in some ways. It, well, it's just a completely new art form, and it has different properties. And I, I compare video games a lot to the seventh art. But really, as the eighth art, it's got different things. It's, the nonlinear poten potential is, is very, very strong. And the, the ideas of um, having the player interact and feel that they're changing the world it's, it's much different than, um, than the previous art forms. And um, the, the best way that I think about this um, are the first nonlinear art forms maybe in some sense are if you go back to the Greek tragedies where, they would, where the, the, the playwrights are, or the actors would ask the actors what they felt and then thumbs up or thumbs down if someone died and they would take it from there and, and, and run with it. That's really the closest that we can come to what we have now, where we have to adapt to what the player has. So I'm, I'm a big believer in looking back to the past uh, to, to learn for the future. Um, you know, emerging gameplay. Uh, the, whole idea, the whole idea of story I often talk about with, with a lot of people, people, people who think story is not important in games, and they use RTSs as a perfect example. Look at, you know, and they'll say, what about this, 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 this real-time strategy game that I play with my friend? There's no story there. But there's the school of psychology where they think your entire life is built upon by, uh, you know, your thoughts and the stories that you tell people. So the story in something like that is a story when you actually kill your friend and blow up his base and how you did it and how you snuck around. And so there, I believe there is story, and, and that's sort of the emergent nature of the game. The meta content creation, how um, we're releasing something <laughs> we're releasing something next week as a video diary. I'm going to show you our second diary. Uh, a, a lot of game developers do diaries, and I, I fight the notion that they, they have to follow this sort of, sort of way of this is, we're just making this video game and showing some cool footage. And so we always try to throw something in there to throw people off. So our first video diary was pretty standard fare. The second one talks about engagement theory, which was uh, a talk I did in 1996 in the video game developers conference and, um, and how we think and how we put stuff together. And um, the third video is really going to talk about some meta content creation, but I'm just going to leave it as a surprise for people to look at. So look for it next week. I think it hits next week. I just got finally approval from all the people that needed to approve it, which is more people working on the game, I think, uh, than working on the game. Um, so personal experiences contribute to the media for the first time. And, you know, these are the kind of things where... I'm, I'm not going to say that that was exclusive to previous types of content, because at some level, talking about plays afterwards and or talking about movies afterwards at the water cooler, that's really, really, you know, that, that definitely is there. But the way that you can particularly do something in an environment, and I was, I was talking about um, in, in, a, in, a, in a classroom today, and, I, geez, I still can't remember. It was someone, the bard, who used to be on EverQuest, and he would strip down all his clothes in, in EverQuest, and he'd try to break the game, and he'd run around and, you know, team all these giants and he'd kill people. He was a hero. He'd post this stuff up on the Internet, and, and people would just love how he was con personally contributing to the world of EverQuest and killing people all the time. And, and trying to claim he was innocent, and it was great. 
He was considered an outlaw back then. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna show to human now and show you how we're trying to you know really take the synthesis of all the arts and try to really um, really do something that helps push the medium forward. So hopefully everyone will like this. Is there anywhere I can get complete dark? There, perfect. I'm going to skip a bit because I don't want to take too long. This, this whole demonstration, this is a, something we showed at GDC. This whole demonstration would take an hour, so I'm not going not to bore you guys with that. I could go into the details of the game, but I'm, I'm, I think it's, that's really not... Um, if people have questions afterwards, please feel free. So I'm just jumping through to the cognitive points. One of the things that we've done with 2Human, and this load screen is the last time you're going to see it, we really think load times really take away from the experience. So erasing the seams is very important to us. far beyond the wall, generally don't come back. It's a good day to die. <laughs> 
You always say that. It always is. <laughs> So, so one of the things with Silicon Knights games, I was going to turn it down a little bit. One of the things with Silicon Knights games is we believe that gamers should not have to control the camera. And when we transitioned, we have this belief that when we transitioned from 2D games like Pac-Man and Defender or whatever your favorite you know, game was back then, and we went to 3D, and I loved Mario, uh, Mario 64. I thought it was fantastic. But suddenly, we introduced complexity to the gamer where they had to worry about controlling the camera at the same time as they did fighting. So what, what's really different and unique about Two Human and um, actually very different even in Eternal Darkness, but this goes much further, is we remove camera control away from the player. The only thing that they have when they're not in combat is free look if they want to look around. And um, so you play the game, and you, sh you should not have to worry about the, ca the camera. So if I'm going to run around here and uh, listen to, say, a conversation between these two wolf troopers, the camera automatically adjusts in from a content perspective and takes the context of what's going on and adjusts the camera. If I decide I don't want to listen to this conversation, I can go away and it just automatically adjusts. It automatically picks targets for me when I'm shooting and when I'm fighting with a sword, and it does things for the, for, for the gamer that really tries to take, a back, take us back to the days in the 2D games where we really did not have to worry about um, the, the camera. And the other thing that we do is we're trying to speak the language of film in video games. So we're taking what we learned from the seventh art form and what it means to have an upshot and a downshot and do that automatically. Now the last thing I'm, I'm going to sort of talk about is because we have an interactive medium, okay, I'm going to have to get the, because we have an interactive medium, all the cinemas that are into human are real time. So I can actually interact in them. So you're going to see some things that you might think are cinema, but they're actually interactive fully. So right now, as an example, it might look like a cinema. But watch me take, see, see me going in a circle here? I actually have full control. And the ideas of having to take away control from the user during cinemas is a misnomer. It's, we're, we're, not, we're, we're not saying we're going to change the world with stuff, but we're taking baby steps. So whether what perspective, the, the camera does not have to be behind the player all the time like in Tomb Raider. So here as an example, I can sit there and I can start shooting this guy as he's looking at me. And you know what? He died before the cinema was even over. So it's that kind of erasing the seams is something that we think is really important. So with that, I'll turn up the volume a bit and uh, 
show some more neat stuff soon. There's me not looking. I walked into the wall. So if we're going to speak the language of film, one of the other things we need to be able to do is to be able to cut to different locations to tell stories so we don't have to keep contiguous track of time without any loads. And this is a completely, um, this is a completely new environment, outdoors, there's no load times, but this is where we're using the technology to make sure we help create the set eighth art. Still interactive, flashback. I have had many humans call my hall the Cliffs of Heaven. Ironic that it represents our world as it once was. Every day I am reminded of what we are fighting to restore. Every day I am reminded that we fight for the benefit of mankind. Welcome home. How are you feeling, brother? 
I would feel better if we had caught the beast. Any trace on the arm? It is definitely a machine origin, but of a design and composition that is totally new. You said it consumed one of the bar's patrons? Yes. It bit a man's head off and appeared to drink blood from his neck. Why would a machine do that? For nourishment, perhaps? Maybe it's part organic with synthetic components. Without the whole specimen, anything is but a guess. I will take an expeditionary force to secure one. There will be no expedition, Balder. Our attention needs to be elsewhere. Hell has dissolved the Pact of the Fallen. Sending task forces on unimportant quests. We are humanity's protectors. We cannot sit idly by as they are eaten by this monster. Very well. A small expeditionary force shall be put at your disposal. But anyway, so right back into the combat again, and um, the idea, the idea once again, is that we want to create an experience that is very seamless and erases all the scenes, but but really combines all the other art forms in such a way that it it is engaging to people. So back to. Back to um, now how we do this and how Silicon Nice is structured, and this is engagement theory. Engagement theory is the central theory in which Silicon Knights uses to create video games. It's expressed like a formula, ironically, because there is no formula for making games. And, but we combine all these different aspects into something that we believe will add up to something that is greater than the sum of its parts. And rather than me actually go through in detail. This is our second diary, the ones that I've been telling you about. I thought I would just play it for everyone. So hopefully you will enjoy this. being amazed that I could actually control something and influence something on the television. That alone really, really hooked me in. The one riveting experience that I remember as a gamer where the content for the first time really stuck me in and I thought, well, this medium is very, very interesting, I was actually playing Ultima 3 on my Atari. I remember vividly not ever having that kind of experience in a book or watching television or anything like it. Yeah, I was participating, I felt for things, and at the same time, I felt I was making some of that happen myself. The goal of a game design, and really when you create a game, is that you really want to introduce people to a world and create universes where they can really feel that's living and breathing. 
It's vast, there's a lot to explore, and it's very dynamic in many ways. It's almost like a, a pool of content where you can just dive in, be completely immersed, and just relax and have a good time as you just watch everything just peel in. When playing a, a game, the main goal for someone playing a game is to be totally immersed and engaged in the game. The way that happens is that all the elements of the game have to work together to create a satisfying whole, whether we look at that as being on the aesthetic level or the experiential level. The way that a game will draw a player in so that they feel that they are involved and engaged in a completely satisfying experience is when all the elements of the game, including sound, uh, gameplay, uh, camera work, and graphics, and so on, are working together to create a believable world and a completely uh, realistic space in which to interact with the game. As a designer, I think the thing that we really try and do um, is, is very situational sometimes. You know, we want to get, in general, we want to get a lot of emotions from the player. We want them to be happy, we want them to be excited, we want them to be curious. And just curiosity goes a long way. You know, when you're looking at level design, one of the things that's very interesting is the amusement parks. You know, in a game, when you get to a new area, you should be completely entranced in the new possibilities. What enemies are here? What items are here? What weapons are here? What characters are here? What are the things that are here for me to do? Uh, just like when you go to a music park and you turn the corner, you go, do I want to go on this roller coaster? Do I want to go on this free fall thing? Uh, you know, that's the same way it should be from a, from a game standpoint. It should be, here I am, look at what I've got. What's here for me? Well, what's cool? What can I check out? One of the best tests that you can do is when you're focus testing is just continually ask the players if they know what time it is. And if they start losing track of time, they really are starting to realize that they're getting into flow. Flow is an experiment, um, a very famous experiment now in the world of psychology, um, really headed up by Professor Sixtet Mahai. And it really talks about how people feel when they get into the group of things, essentially. As a psychologist, of course, I'm really interested not so much in the technology of the game, but I'm interested in the impact it has on the end user. I'm interested in the psychology of the game player. In order to generate flow with video games, I think what we want to do is understand what kinds of experiences can produce flow. If you're talking about a video game in which there's competition, the competition needs to be well balanced. You get in a flow when you're playing tennis against an opponent at about your level of ability, maybe a little bit above. If you're playing with somebody that's way too good, you get crushed, no flow. If you play with somebody that's nowhere near as good as you, you get bored, no flow. If we create games that have great gameplay, that's balanced so that you have a challenge, but it's not overwhelming, but it's also not underwhelming. Uh, and so I think that, uh, for me, moving into the theory of flow, what creates this psychological state in the end user, and drawing from those flow principles uh, a general set of statements, uh, that constitutes, for me, the core of engagement theory. Engagement theory is the central theory that Silicon Knights uses to create games. It's expressed ironically in the formula because there is no formula for making games. And we strongly feel that by combining all these parts equally, that the game itself will become greater than the sum of its parts. When you look at a film, you sometimes tend to forget that there is a frame around the image and you project yourself into the world of the film. What video games look for is something, some kind of interaction that's deeper. It's engagement on uh, a mental level as well as a physical level. Engagement theory really is when every single aspect of the game comes together and makes something that 
is greater than every little part of that. And one of the things that is incredible about it is it can be something so subtle as you're in the middle of combat and the music starts to ramp up and some other characters run in that you've met earlier in the game and you've kind of grown a bit of an attachment to or you know their background or you have some information about them that makes them interesting. And the, the fight keeps on going on and the music's going up and up and up and then you finish that battle and you look over at that that guy that you knew when you fought the battle with and you just kind of go, oh, what's next? I would have to say if I had to summarize overall as a designer what we're looking for you know, from a gamer standpoint for the experiences, they, they should smile, they should have fun, and they should be happy in what they do. When we're creating games, we're always trying to create the best experience possible for the player. And it's really about engaging and immersing the player into worlds with you know, fun, where they just can escape from reality and just be purely entertained. And that's what we try to do with every video game that we create. It's really kind of hard to, to summarize, but it's that big package that comes together, and if they pick up the controller and they're smiling, that's the goal. I'm proud of that video from, from, from two standpoints. Um, I hope it doesn't start playing. Okay, good. Um, well, three now, now that it didn't play again. Um, but uh, the first one is um, that's marketing. And all these diaries that we do are marketing. And But it's when we started creating these diaries, I wanted to create something that was different. And, and you know, if, it, if you can say something that makes, you know, people think at some level, I think that I think that that's a really good thing to do, and so this that particular diary itself uh, got a lot of response from from the academic community. Actually, we had a lot of people write and wanted to know where engagement theory came from, and it was really cool because we were going to say it came from us, but to spread it around. Um, but um, also, um, it also helped really let people know what we were trying to do in the game, and it also. I think, and really with the sort of experimentation and the focus testing that we're doing on Flow, asking people what time it is really, really does work. So Silicon Knights is based around this whole theory. We have groups, and we're very director-heavy. And so we focus completely on this. We have five departments of, of audio, game design, technology, content and story, and art, all that have directors. My role is I'm a general director, and then all the other directors we all work together on the various different parts. And in some sense, uh, they control the different art forms to make sure it all comes together. And it, the idea is really clearly um, with engagement theory, and when I did the talk in 1996, um, I used games like Seventh Guest and Myst as examples of how games could be successful and not rely on gameplay. Because right now, there are these schools of thought within video games that gameplay is the most important thing. And if you're going to look at cinema and the seventh art, at first it was called the cinema of attraction. There was no content in, 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 in stories at all. And what people would do, they'd go into a theater and sit down, and they would have, and this is an example of feeding the baby. This was like, I think, a 45-second film of all they were doing was feeding the baby. The camera never moved. And people would come in, and it would just spin. People would just be sit down, and they'd be happy to see 
motion. And that is where we're at with gameplay right now. Some people think out there that gameplay is absolutely everything. It is really important. I'm not going to say that it's not important, but it is absolutely not everything. And um, just as we've moved from spectacle to narrative in movies, or in the seventh art, we're going to move away from completely dominated uh, games that are, have terrible graphics and terrible sound and just rely upon gameplay into a well-balanced content-based approach into a true art form, which is the eighth art. I think we're the dominant art form because of these, these, these things. <laughs> we're being attacked by everybody. Um, and we're, um, you know, we're, we're creating murder simulators. Um, I've been playing video games all my life, and I'm, I think I turned out okay. I think so. And, and my mom believes that that's the case, so I know it's true. Um, but more people are playing video games now than any other type of media. More than, they, more than they watch TV, more than they read books, more than they listen to music. And it's a true convergence. And in some sense, it's become part of everyday culture to pwn somebody. And it's these type of things that I think are really, really, just really straight out and say, not only are video games art, but they're the next evolution and the eighth art form. And that is it. Yeah, question. But then, um, I was. Do I have to turn this on or anything? I know it's on. All right. I was wondering how you reconcile how you feel about this art you've created with how um, a how critics feel about it, or more importantly, how it sells, or how the, if you feel it comes across to the customer that you've done that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a tough question, um, and I I guess. I, I think as we've been doing video games for a long time, and now we've been, Silicon Ice as an example, been highly criticized at times, and you really get to understand the notion. I've, I've watched a lot of media on you know, movies and how directors respond to critics or um, in some cases not well, but a lot of the times they're really guarded and they tend not to talk about these things. So they, now, there's, um, now they have sort of director's cuts where they talk about some things in the video, but I don't think... I've ever seen press where a director will talk about, you know, Balder being in a Christ, you know, pose or something like that. They don't talk about those ideas because it almost leaves them open more for attack. So I think, um, I think in some ways it's best just not to respond. Uh, you listen. We listen all the time. Reading the forums is painful. It's, it's like it, it's getting punked every day and watching photoshops of yourself being put up on the Internet is never pleasant. And, um, but it's just... The, with the type of media that we have, it's, it's all you can do is just believe in what you're doing and hope that it does well. And um, our rule at Silicon Knights uh, when you're creating a game is create a game that you like because if you like it, you know you've pleased at least one person. And what, there's nothing really else you can do. It's, it's entertainment. So. so so when you talk about uh, games being the eighth, um, the eighth art, 
Um, but you also talk about uh, games being entertainment in a way. And when you say entertainment, I'm assuming you don't mean it in opposition to art. Like games are not about provoking thought or, uh, you know, inciting social change or anything like that. But do you, does your definition of entertainment sort of incorporate that or, or not? Yes, abs- absolutely. And um, I would say um, that entertainment should do those things. Um, if you look at if you look at To Human as a really good example, we take a very Shakespearean approach to the way we do things at Silicon Knights. When Shakespeare would tell uh, dirty jokes for everyone who's inebriated in the front rows. But he'd also tell very cerebral metaphors for the aristocracy and the balconies. So on the highest level of two human, it's man versus machine. Everyone gets that. It's, it's, it's in, the, in the sort of real um, Beavis and Butthead world of uh, Terminator meets Lord of the Rings. And, um, but on a deeper level, it's a retelling of Norse mythology from a science fiction perspective. But at the deepest, deepest level, it's asking questions and really, you know, working on metaphors in, of the invasion of technology into society and how it's affecting us and our fears and, and how, how it's really, how it's bad for us, how it's good for us. And um, we think it's imperative that we do these things as entertainment because we want to create catharsis. We want, we want to do things that make people think because we think it's healthy, if that makes sense. So I absolutely do believe that's part of entertainment. And if, if you heard my panel at GDC about storytelling in games and how some groups were saying, we just want popcorn, and I, I think popcorn is great, but sometimes you want some more healthy food to digest because it's just better for you. So just a well-balanced diet as far as I think entertainment can be just pure popcorn, and I also think it can be pure Shakespeare, and I think there's room for everything. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive in any way. So I have a question for you about um, the, the, the image you put up with the, kind of the seven different kinds of art as they were defined. Um, something that's interesting about those compared to video games is frequently with the other kinds of art, and not always, but most of the time, um, you actually can restrict what the, what the viewer sees so that they're right there with you. So you... I mean, like in a film, you can set pacing, you can set exactly how these things move across so that uh, viewers are, are, are experiencing the experience you want them. You can make a painting in a certain way so they experience that. When you add in the tremendous amount of interactivity that games have, um, sometimes it, it's hard to do that without, I guess, without restricting what the user can do, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you give them just a really, really open world and they can do anything, then you may lose some of that ability to kind of say, well, here's what I'm trying to get across. So I guess, how do you, how do you balance that? We actually fall back to some really basic principles uh, from poetics and Aristotle's poetics, where, um, and just basic storytelling rules, Hollywood rules of, if it doesn't contribute, don't put it in. That, that's not the entire answer. But you don't want to create superfluous characters, as an example, if they don't contribute to the plot in any way. And when you create a world, and also a little bit of, I guess, some ideas from Brenda Laurel in Computers as Theater, where if, if you look at um, a play, it's not important for the play, an actor in a play, to be a real person. He only needs to be a believable person that you can associate with. So when you're creating a world and you're creating AI, as an example, and as a, if anyone, just to be really clear, I don't think there's any AI in the video games industry. I think it's a misnomer. But um, if you're doing the 
artificial intelligence for a particular actor in a game, it's not important that they have a, a, a regular life cycle where they go to bed, get up, go to the bathroom, do all the eat, and if they don't eat, they get the thin. If they overeat, they get fat. None of that is important, but what is important is that you believe them as, as a person. And so you have to create these environments like theater where you suspend disbelief. So into human, when you're walking around and you have some interactivity in some of these things, it's not, it's not that you can go around and just destroy everything because that destroys the narrative. So you have to put up these, I guess, uh, safety wheels, or I, I don't know how to describe it, but you just, you just, I just don't think, com when you start getting into completely open worlds, you start getting into navigation problems, you know, when does your story end if it's completely open in the beginning and the end, and some of the, some of the research that was done earlier on about storytelling, and what if there really was no end, and, you know, so you really have to, you have to contain it in some way, so what you try to do is essentially try to create video games, in my eyes, it's like creating five director's cuts. And what if the player did this here? What if the player did this here? But you just can't anticipate everything. So you just try to use sort of those, you know, the ideas that you can pull from various subjects, but in the end, just make sure everything that you're putting in has a significant impact. Otherwise, you're probably wasting your time because it's exponentially explosive. Does that make sense? Okay. I was just curious if you had a, a professional mythographer on your... Uh in your company, a or professional mythographer, or uh, just had outside consulting, or did you just research have the story department research on their own? So, so yeah. Um, or how close are you following the Norse mythos? Um, almost exactly, <laughs> and we're lucky enough to be in the situation of two human. We've been working on the original concept was in, created in 1993. Mm -hmm. So when we first started doing it, I knew nothing about myth Norse mythology. I, I guess I'm a I get quasi expert, um, but. Um, the Ken McCulloch, who's the director of content at Silicon Knights, um, he actually read some, the original Eddas, yeah. started learning some of the original language. Oh, wow. um, so we went pretty insane on detail, actually. And every god in the pantheon that we can represent, we are. Mm -hmm. um, the monsters. And I noticed Heimdall, he has the eye things. So yeah, that's he's, interesting. Yeah, he's, he's the god that sees everything, can hear the grass grow. Yeah, because he's supposed to be blind. But right, yeah. He, he, instead, he did eye things. Is he, was he blind? I, can't, I haven't read um, Blind. Just the eye things kind of cover the blind. It, I don't think Heimdall's supposed to be blind, is he? I think you're thinking of a hoad. Oh, maybe I am. I'm, yeah. Um, I'm rusty. <laughs> I'm that's okay. That's okay. It's Norse mythology. Um, th so if he was blind, he'd be like, how I did I miss I that? No, it's Hode. Hode's the blind one. Okay. Yeah, so Hode's the blind so that, one. That's gonna but, fall in there too. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't. And that's one of the interesting things. One of the one of the. If we're retelling Norse mythology, a lot of people are afraid to read Norse mythology because they think they're gonna get spoilers. It's all different. There's no way. There's no way. And uh, it's funny because actually uh, people will enjoy it more if they read Norse mythology. And what what I get a kick out of personally is going on the forums and seeing people do research on Norse mythology. And I, I look at the video game industry and think we just need a little bit more of that sometimes. And it's just a great secondary goal, because if people are going to play video games more than they're doing their homework, you know, then let's give them something else besides popcorn. Let's give them a diet of something that they can actually survive on and talk about later. And so um, as much as we can, we're trying to be accurate and do as much research as we can. And I, I don't think... It's really frightening, actually. We actually have a pretty hardcore contingent from Norway that writes us a lot. And if we make any mistakes, they tell us. So, um, and the, the crazy thing is we have the Eddas, but 
they, they, those myths have been told forever, and they know things that aren't documented anywhere still. Yeah, it's, oral yeah, it's, it, well, it's still there in the culture, though. We, we've, I've talked to some people and gone to a couple of websites, and I'm like, where does this exist? And they're like, oh, we just know. And I'm like, oh. So, but anyway. yeah, I was just curious. It's yeah, like so, so, so we didn't actually hire anyone. And, and just, just to be clear as well, we don't believe in outsourcing at all. Everyone in Silicon Knights is full-time. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, proponent of, I'm a big Peter Drucker fan um, and, and knowledge-based capital. And we are doing everything we can to protect everyone at Silicon Knights. So everyone at Silicon Knights is full-time. Everything you've seen here has been created at Silicon Knights. Um, and uh, story, script writing. So um, when you said mytho- my, what do you call it? A, myth- a mythographer. Uh, mythographer? Like a, no, no, someone who's into mythologies, right? Yeah, like yeah. Joseph Campbell, something right. like that. Yeah, no, no we, we read a lot of Joseph Campbell. But, <laughs> and, and, uh, um, but um, essentially, uh, no, but we tend not to contract people. We try to just bring them into the fold. And even like John and Barry, who are tenured professors mm-hmm. at the local university, They've actually been at Silicon Knights for 10 years straight as well. So um, we, when someone's at Silicon Knights for 10 years, we knight them and give them a sword as well. So we're really, we, we really think, and I don't allow anyone to say that they work for Dennis because we all work together. Trying The longer we stay together, the better we feel we'll make games. And it's, it's very, very much a Shakespearean approach to things as well yeah, from that. The whole sort of troop idea and the guild philosophies, those are things we really believe in. If this tanks, do you think you're going to go for another kind of art house blockbuster with a smaller budget or kind of thing are you thinking? <laughs> my, mother, my mother told me this pe- can't possibly tank. Um, she, believes in, she believes in me. Um, she does. She's, she's, she's great. Um, yes, without question. Um, and we already have one in the works already that I haven't been talking about. And if Two Human does not do well, it will be exceedingly painful for Silicon Knights. Um, I will not say that that won't be true. Um, however, uh, we're just going to keep going, doing what we think. And, and now it all comes down to, it, you almost make it seem like sometimes we have a choice. We have to fight and work really hard to get these budgets approved. And, and the business side... And talking to the business people about some of these issues is quite a culture clash at times. And um, that's why there's the wall of the industry. So, and, and, um, you know, uh, the business side tends to be more on the bottom, unfortunately. So, um, but it is what it is. And so I hope so. I hope so. I think it's a great game. And um, Eternal Darkness was nowhere near as successful as Legacy of Kane, which sold millions and millions of copies when we first released it on the PlayStation 1. But it was very, very critically acclaimed. I like to call it our Blade Runner. Everyone talks about Eternal Darkness, uh, just no one bought it. Um, well, actually, it, it did fairly well, but not, not as well as it should have. Let's put it that way. So, um, you know, we just keep going. It's got to keep going. Don't, don't know what else to say. Um, I, I kind of wanted to dig at, at some of the, the things in your theory, and especially on, on this, and just, just to kind of run it at you. You're talking about that, that video games are, are really popular and that they're the dominant art form. And while I don't want to say that they're, they're 
there aren't skills required to get meaning out of movies or out of books. Um, one of the things that's become apparent to me in studying the breadth of games being made today is that there's becoming a bigger split between games in the tradition of games that have been made you know, since the 16-bit era in terms of complexity of controls and what you can assume about what they know and then like the rising casual game movement or the Wii and I was curious if this was um, if this was something you, you'd try to address, if this is something that Silicon Knights wants to f focus in on this, this tradition, the, I'll say they're the traditional games, not, but there's histories of casual games elsewhere, but I, I was curious if this was something that, that, um, that you thought about or had comment on, I guess. Yeah, oh, absolutely, um, and, um, this borders along the lines of the one console future talk that I do. And uh, that, that raises a lot of ire on the religious fanatic front on what console's the best. Um, we believe a, a, a lot of things, and um, I wasn't sure what theory you're trying to tie me down on there, too, because so, I, I, I threw a few out there. Um, but we believe we're reaching a perceptual threshold on technology where the average consumer cannot tell the differences between the different hardware manufacturers. And uh, this gets into commoditization, performance oversupply, um, which are economic terms, but essentially it means hardware is becoming less valuable. And really what it's all about is the games. And um, so when we created 2Human, we tried to create the most simple control scheme ever. And, and through our focus testing, people can pick it up and play really, really quickly. And the idea of the consoles as we see them now are, are just like technology in general are completely misunderstood. Um, people think that we're in a competitive marketplace. We're actually not. We have three closed markets trying to compete for a monopoly. We do not have a competitive marketplace where there's a single standardized console like a, a DVD where all movies go off against each other. So you can have something like Resistance Call of Man being released at the same time as Gears of War, one on the 360, one on the PlayStation 3, and they are absolutely not competing against each other unless you have both consoles. And from that perspective, the Wii... A lot of people uh, believe that it's a new movement and a new type of game, and I actually disagree on that. First of all, it's relying on hardware, and I think hardware is becoming less and less important. But there are other games in the same genre of the Wii. I think the Wii's great, so just be really clear. But I don't think it's going to change anyone's life. And it's my whole perspective on technology being sold as this, this thing. It's, um, so anyway, let me answer the question and go on a bit more, too, because I enjoy these kind of discussions. Um, the, um, essentially, um, there are games like Guitar Hero, Rock Band. Okay, there are flight simulators that go back 20 years where you're sitting in the cockpit. I used to love the Battletech simulators in Chicago when I used to go to CES. Those are all in the same genre as the Wii. And what they did is they, they allowed games that play outside you know, of the actual screen, which I think is really cool, but it's not going to replace any of the other ones. There's just room for everything. So they're just focusing on a genre that people haven't focused on in a while and it's been incredibly successful, very user-friendly, and I think that's great. And we always try to make our games user-friendly as well. Um, so I think, I think from that perspective, we absolutely do think about it. And, but what I think is really needs to happen is we really need to start focusing more on the content and the games themselves and less on the hardware and what the hardware can do. And I know everyone here being at MIT, um, you know, I, we're all big believers in, in, in technology from a standpoint of the potential, but we have to 
one of I read a lecture series when, when, when I was younger and, and doing uh, my master's thesis called The Real World of Technology by Ursula Franklin. It was a Massey Hall lecture series. And she talked about things like the sewing machine. And when the sewing machine was first introduced, it was introduced as a freeing technology that was going to improve women's life lives for the future. And you would be able to sew in one hour what you could sew in a week or a month. And that's how it was marketed. And when they started being mass-produced, someone came up with the idea of, if they could do that in one hour, what could they do in 16? And if it was one person, what could we do if we filled a whole room full of people? And suddenly this freeing technology became this enslaving technology. When cars were first introduced, and still, as of today, when I go into an airport and I see a picture of a plane, this beautiful picture of these gears and these, these things, it's, and, and when cars are marketed, and when they first marketed, they were saying things like, treat your car better than your girlfriend or your wife to the males that they were marketing it to. And people actually did. And when they talk about the consoles, how many people on internet forums will scream and yell, or post in all caps in this case, <laughs> um, and say that their console's better because they have to justify their purchase? And I think these ideas, and this is why I think to human is so important to make the statement of, we really need to understand technology and how it affects us. And I think the we is a really good example of opening up a, a, a market that people haven't thought about for a while, but it's based upon hardware. And it's that we remote that, quite frankly, could be in any other system. And it's these kind of principles that I, I, I wish we could just sort of untangle ourselves from and say, we don't care about these console wars. And every time I do a one console future talk, I get looked at by the PR people from Microsoft in a funny way. And I used to get looked at a, a, a funny way from, uh, from Nintendo as well. And I understand. I'm not, I'm not trying to pick a winner. I'm just saying what I think would be better for the market. And when I was actually talking to, oh, I get to use this already. Um, when I was actually talking to someone on the plane flight down here, which was really bumpy, um, but um, he's an economist. Uh, no, he's a financial analyst, I think, for... From the, for the biotech industry, which I know nothing about. We started talking about the different industries. Apparently, it's a lot like the games industry. Pretty interesting. But he said, the first thing we do when we analyze a marketplace is we see how it's segmented and, and how it fluctuates. And, he's, and he said, well, looking at the games industry with the different consoles and who's dominant and who's not, I'd probably not invest in this community because um, fluctuations like this compared to the oil industry and other, other industries um, really mean that it's unstable and you're likely to lose a lot of money, and, and you know, financial people are risk-adverse. So if we actually had a single console, and you know, good games actually could like, sell three to four times more, uh, the actual com competition in the hardware would get driven down by the multiple competitors. I'm not talking about an open system here, where um, multiple people would do the manufacturing, like Toshiba, and, and they'd bring, so you wouldn't have to pay $120 for a 60 gig, uh, megabyte hard drive, or whatever they sell them for now, or $60 for a controller that clearly costs $3. Um, um, but no one else can you know, compete because they're closed. And you also suddenly can bring the price of games down because you're selling to more people. When, when, a, when, a, when a grandmother goes into a store and wants to buy a game for her, her grandson, Charlie, she picks the game, and then she has to pick the console. Is this the right console? Is it on the Wii? Is it on the, you know, or if you're playing a PC game right now and, and you happen to buy Crisis, you have to see if your PC will actually run this game. So these are the kind of things that why I think the sort of consoles in, in the different directions are really need to be thought about from a, a, an open perspective and really make them as uniform as possible so we can just concentrate on making the games. So that was a really long answer, but that's, we do think about it.
Hey, uh, I got two questions. The first one is uh, in uh, two human, you seem to tackle like deep ideas, mythology, and stuff like that. Uh, but in many recent games, I, I feel kind of disconnect between between the ideas and the story and the actual actions that you can perform in the game because they tend to be quite simple. And what we saw in the game was pretty much like killing monsters. Mm. So, so do you feel in any way like limited by the? Um, Existing gameplay genres and uh, the expectations of of the of the um, of the market. And the, the second question is, yeah. you were talking about the eighth uh, eighth art, and you uh, it kind of seemed that you you think it's it was an inevitable uh, evolution, and that um, that it it kind of it goes forward to a new kind of experience. But when you Could you compare your uh, um, your experience playing Ultima Three and like playing games like Two Human? Is it is it really better? Is it is it the only way? And uh, don't we kind of shut off um, companies that don't have the access to all the money and technology to make games like this? Um. So I'll tr try to try to go through every one. Um, first of all, I think our, I consider. So your first question of, do I think we're art because you see us killing monsters compared to the other parts of the game with the cinemas? We're always trying to erase the seams and trying to make it as seamless as possible and, and create interactivity. We're doing our best at, at that. And um, so your criticisms on the gameplay and, and those type of things, um, there's other things I could have showed, but um, I consider us in our infancy in, in the medium. So if you look at films like Feeding the Baby, Um, compared to, I don't know, uh, what's, what's a recent movie I really liked? Um, I don't, you know, what's, what, anyway, some, some, The Godfather. Okay, they just, they're just not the same. They're just not as good. And do I wish we could, you know, make the fighting just like they are? For, oh, yeah, for sure. You know, it might take more money and more time, and, and, and then I'd have to talk to the business people into it, but eventually, hopefully, um, do I think... We should limit other people who don't have that. No, absolutely not. I'm not. I'm not saying. Okay, I'm not trying to say that there's there is enough room for everybody. It's all inclusive. Just like in the movie industry, there's independent games, and and you can have one of the one of the sort of core concepts of engagement theory. And when I talked about uh, games like The Seventh Guest or Mist, the gameplay in those games are actually pretty terrible. And I was just out to show that it wasn't just gameplay, but you can have one thing that's so overpowering that you can forget the rest, and you can entertain and engage people. As long as you're entertaining and engaging people, whatever it is, whether it's going to be Tetris or, you know, I think that's, there's plenty of room for that. So I, I, um, I, if, if it seemed like I was trying to say that, uh, that's not what I was trying to say, and I, I, I think there's room for everybody. Um, hi. Hi. I, um, I really appreciated the thing you said about the idea of games as the eighth art and that each form sort of reinterprets um, reinterprets and resynthesizes previous art forms. And um, I think, I wonder sometimes if video games have gotten diverse enough that it stops making sense to refer to them as being a single medium or a single art form in the sense, you know, I'm not sure I can think, I'm not sure I can think of film, or two films that are different enough to be analogous to the difference between Eternal Darkness and Second Life. Yeah. And I wonder if you think over time, your particular brand of sort of holistic design that uses everything and tries to balance it all, will that become 
sort of the dominant school in the dominant art form, or will will we start seeing a split up into different video game forms? Well, it, so it, well, you said one thing. I thought about that tri- Canudo's, can, Canudo's triangle and how I would put the new, mm-hmm. you know, part. And I kind of thought that it would be, and I didn't have time. I wish it would have had time, but I wanted to make this three-dimensional pyramid. <laughs> Because I think it doesn't add on top in two dimensions. I think gameplay actually makes it go in three dimensions. And I think that... Um, but I'd have to think about it some more, actually. I, I also hesitated because I wasn't sure I wanted more time. Um, so Visual th- metaphors are rough. What's that, sorry? Visual metaphors are tough. Yes, yes. And um, I, I, uh, in the end, there's going to be all kinds of... Um, there's going to be all kinds... There's just room for... For everything, I think in in that regard, I don't I don't agree. I guess that there's a split. That there's different kinds of. I think there's just it's a wild west right now. We haven't explored all there is to explore. Still, there's going to be new genres or new genres rethought. And I I, I do believe we're going to move away the, from the traditional first person shooters and survival horror type of genre of games and start moving towards more dramatic, you know, formalizations of the genres like science fiction and um, you know uh, horror suspense. And um, when we finished Eternal Darkness as an idea, as, as an example, someone said, well, we can never make a love story, right? And, and I immediately, you know, within a, a couple of weeks, came up with uh, a concept that was revolved around the love story because I think we need, to, we need to expand these mediums. And um, so I don't know. Will everyone think our way? There's a lot of people in the industry, in the video games industry, that strongly, strongly, strongly disagree with things I say. And um, I think that's great. Um, and I, I think if it creates discourse and gets people thinking about it, I think it's fantastic. I definitely don't think we're the only way. I just think this is the way that we think is right, and it's the direction we're taking. You know, That's the engagement theory as a formula. It's not really a formula. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope we will have time to talk more tomorrow, but I still have a burning question that I want to uh, ask. You talked about metaphors and you talked about layers of meaning in your games, and that's very fascinating to me. You also said gameplay is not everything, and you want to bring in all these other art forms to enrich the experience of games. Um, I'm just wondering, is this the most medium-specific approach to expand the thematic and emotional palette of games, or would there be an approach that makes more use of Gameplay is such to tackle complex ideas and address different layers of meaning. Well, I think I think gameplay, like every other, like every other section or area, can be a. So I showed um, I showed all the traditional art forms. Really, what I should have, I, I guess, showing to human was showing some of the gameplay, and but um, the ways in which. Just like, again, I'm going I'm to fall back to we're in the early stages right now of a video game you know, history. The, and back then, all they did was take films of you know, firefighters rescuing babies out of build, burning buildings, and people would just watch them on end just to see you know, the, the cinema of attraction. And um, we need exactly what you just said. We need to explore and figure out how to do that more. So I, I absolutely think it is possible. And right now... We're pulling from the other art forms because it's easier, and there's some there's two thousand years of history on how to evoke emotion through color, okay? But we don't have that of interactivity yet. And if 
if you, as an example, would write a paper that would move us forward in that direction, I'd be, I'd love to read it. <laughs> All right. So, just just as a historical follow-up, uh, the baby film you were talking about is what two years in the history of cinema. Life of American Firemen's maybe ten years in the history of cinema. You're thirty-something years in the history of games. So the argument about infancy starts to wear thin after thirty years of development in the medium. It's clear you're not maturity, but. 30 years in the history of cinema, we're at Last Laugh, we're at Battleship Potemkin. You know, the standards have to be a little higher when you consider the amount of time that that medium's been developing. Well, I, I, I'm going I'm to key off a perfect word with, and I think that's a valid point, but I'm going to key off a perfect word that you used there, and that was standard. Where the significant shift in the, in the actual movie industry occurred is when the film camera became standardized. When the film camera became standardized, all the people who were dominant in the art form who could do all the technical tricks, cut the film the best, do the wire tricks, having the trains come into the TV, they were dominating the film industry before then. But what happened when it became standardized and everyone had the same tools? Then people started moving towards content, and you saw the significant shift in Hollywood. There was mergers and acquisitions, and the same sticks studios that came out of that are still around today. What we need in our industry is a single standard where we can, I'll tell you right now, every time you make a video game, you have to create it from the ground up. We, we creating all these engines and all these things, it's really, really hard work. So I think if we move towards a, standard, a standardization where we can really focus on the content that occurred, it just, in my eyes, it just happened a lot faster in Hollywood because the technology was simpler and became standardized faster. And I really, really wish the technology was standardized in the video games industry because I think that's a significant difference. Now, I'm not going to say that that completely invalidates what you're saying because I think you have some good points there. Um, I, think, I think we're so used to linear art forms as a medium over the last 1,000 years maybe that, you know, that we need to be more accustomed to nonlinear art forms. I think we need to look and study at, you know, what the Egyptians did, uh, you know, to build their pyramids and impress people, and what kind of stories and how they, and how they did those types of things. But um, that's that's the best answer I can give to that, and that's why I would say um, I still think that this has validity in what we're saying. This question is bringing us uh, maybe a little bit down from the pyramids, but in terms of standardization, I'm kind of interested in download and digital delivery, and I was wondering if you could just speculate a little bit about that. Absolutely the future. And um, if you um, – ever, ever heard of a, a book called The Diamond Age? And in, 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 uh, it's a science fiction, and in, in this future, people's wealth is defined – by the the bandwidth to the internet, per se, and it's all the world is ruled by nanotechnology, and um, you can create anything, but how long it takes you to create is defined by your bandwidth. Okay, so if you want to create a car, um, and you have a huge bandwidth, it, you can do it instantly, and it's essentially it's all you need. Whereas if you're not very wealthy and you have a have a, a very thin internet pipe. It will take you a couple of years to build that car. So you have to choose very carefully. And in this future, there's people building islands for the weekend. And, and um, so if you take technology to the standpoint of just imagine it's infinite, where there's more memory than you'll ever need, more bandwidth than you'll ever need, okay, there comes a point in time. And I think this is why video games will survive the IP wars, um, essentially for piracy and um, because we can create areas that are interactive and that if you – and 
I like this analogy of if you videotape a movie, you, you'll lose some quality, but you'll get the same experience. If you videotape yourself playing a game, because you need to be interactive in that medium, it's not the same experience. It fundamentally changes. So with the internet and internet distribution, imagine that they don't distribute anything. Imagine that it's so fast that all you have is a controller, per se, or maybe it's even a holodeck. But that is just beamed to you, and you pay for that experience rather than anything physical or any kind of bytes that you download. So that is absolutely the future, and eventually there will be nothing else but that. And there's no way around that. I, I think that's completely inevitable. That's my opinion, of course, but maybe some strong words, too strong. I don't know. Cool. I have another question for you. Um, at one point, either the movie or you said that you always tell people that you should make a game that works well for you first because then you know you have at least one person that likes it, right? I love Too Human. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think it looks wicked cool. I can't wait to play it. Thanks. But, um, so that, that's an interesting statement to make because um, one of the things that you frequently have to think about when you're making these games is the fact that you aren't the end user and that the end user may have very different uh, goals and things that they want in yep. mind. And so what you, the solution to that, of course, is to do heavy testing. And so what happens when you have someone or you have people coming in and testing and they're telling you that they don't like the way that you've done something and that directly conflicts with your artistic, what you want to do with the art on that? Do you toss what the user is saying? Do you say, well, at the end of the day, we've got to make a buck, and do you change your art? You work really hard to invalidate what they're saying. Um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, uh, so that I, I guess a, a couple of analogies, and I hear some of these things that people say make me laugh, and one of them is, what's a, what's a horse designed by committee? And it's a camel. <laughs> and um, not that there's anything wrong with camels, beautiful animals, <laughs> but they, it's not a horse. And um, you absolutely cannot design things by what people say, but what you need to do is take that often in, you know, I was, I was lucky enough, I think, when I did my master's degree to be part of sort of, you know, some focus testing and some scientific um, you know, research in, in, in doing this properly is, you know, as best we could, understanding that you can get, you got to be really careful with information and what it's really saying. And they can point out something that can be interpreted in many, many ways. So you really have to look at what they're saying and say, is this a problem? So as an example, we had a focus test earlier on where people complained about the camera in which all the other tests we've done, the camera was fine. And they're like, oh, we don't like the camera, we don't like the camera, we don't like the camera. And, we, and some of the people uh, were initially pretty worried about that. And then I, I kind of looked at it and went, well, maybe, maybe the camera's a problem, we, we can't ignore that. But what also was happening is that people were getting lost in the level. And, that was, and what that happened then, they wanted to take control of the camera because they were gamers, and they wanted to find where to go, and they couldn't control the camera, so they got frustrated. And the real problem was a navigation problem. And um, so, you know, you have to look at that and get the information that you can. Now, if you're creating something that everyone says is uniformly bad, which um, people did say about some of our games at one point, you have to look at it and say, is it because the game's bad? And you have to make the call. You know, it, uh, did it, is this a bad idea? Because not every idea you're going to create is going to be good. But if you believe in that idea, you just can't give up on it. You've got you've to look at it and say, can I give a rationale 
of why I'm getting this data back or this information back and deal with it. And use that to your advantage to make the game better. That's, that's, the, that's the best advice I can give to that one. I, I really, you know, Silicon Knights is, a, is not a democracy. It's, I've said this earlier. It's, 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 a great, it's a benevolent dictatorship. And um, my role as a director, if, not, if everyone can agree, then there's no issue. I have, there's no problems. But if no one can agree or there's three or four different camps, then it's my job to pick the one that we're going to go forward with, give a rationale for why we should do this, and hopefully it's the right decision. But since we're all human and we all make mistakes, it's guaranteed that there's going to be mistakes somewhere along the line. And then from there, you have to deal with those mistakes. And I think what really separates the good games from the bad games are those who deal with the mistakes better once they're made because you're always in, in game design and creation it's just it's just a, it's a nightmare half the time you know you're on the bleeding edge of hardware some of the compilers don't work we, we have some issues even now where the compiler won't compile so it's just like okay how do we fix this you know and so I hope does that answer the question uh, kind of I guess that that there must have been certain times though when it really came like push came to shove like what the complaint was was something about the art stuff that you were putting in there that people didn't like. That must have happened at some point, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and so and so yeah, and sure. so what what tack did you take at that point? Did you did you say, you know, the art is paramount or did you say, you know what, we have to eat? Sometimes. Sometimes you do both. Sometimes you kill something, you need to stop working on it, or sometimes you take that information and change what you're doing. Um however, um you know, most of the time, most of the time, you just work at making it better, and you take that information. So, um, but sometimes it's sometimes it's just bad news, and you got to deal with it. And it's not always good news. It's not always playing games and having fun. That's for sure. So, yeah. thanks. Uh huh. Um, you were mentioning the seven arts, and it's a kind of. I don't know if it's standard or, you know, comes from the Greek muses or whatever. And uh, one art that I was kind of missing, even though you were mentioning it every now and then, is theater. You were mentioning Brenda Laurel, who talks about computers as theater. You were mentioning Aristotle. So is there anything that you're borrowing from theater? Actually, one of your games, you were talking about absolutely. how yeah, absolutely. You, you, you presented it as a stage. So what are you bringing from theater into <laughs> so, your so, games? So yeah, don't, don't, don't um, mix our views with Canuto's views. Um, so Canuto coined the seventh art, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm using that as a convenient jumping point mm -hmm. uh, to try to categorize video games, but I absolutely, I don't think it's comprehensive. I think it's interesting, um, but I think there's a lot more things um, involved, and certainly theater has been very big personally for me as an influence, um, but there's, there's many, many more as well. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, different, you know, forms. I, I, uh, in the story panel that I did at GDC, someone, I had an interesting comment, it might have been the interview afterwards that I did with 1UP, where someone's, someone was complaining, who was a writer, was frustrated because science fiction is treated not as well as other dramatic, um, you know, like drama or action in the movie industry. And her point was, why can't we go back to Aristotle and, and you know, just tragedy and comedy? And so those classifications as well, I, I often think about that. And I wish in some way we could tragedy and comedy, but tragedy, what it meant back then compared to what it means now, is like totally different. And so I think these different categorizations are convenient for speaking points, but I would in no way 
stand strong and say that the seventh, the finding film is the seventh art, and how it's how that came about. It's it's a convenient coin in calling this the eighth art form. At one point, um, a lot, and even last year, really, people were arguing about whether video games were art at all. So for me, this is a really quick way of saying not only are they art, they're the eighth art. And then and then people go, whoa, what's he talking about? And then that kind of loses most of them. And then and then he's kind of. They just kind of agree with me at that point, and they go, ah. Oh. So, so it was his, it was his classifications, uh, I, but I strongly agree, theater, awesome. So, yeah. so what do you take from theater? Are there any examples that, that you can talk about? Yeah, well, the, the, one, that, the one that I used, the one that I, I previously used, I really like using a lot for artificial intelligence. Anytime I hear someone in our industry talk about how revolutionary they, their AI is, I think about some of the neural net stuff I did, and I look at some of the stuff they're doing and going, there's no research in our industry. Don't pretend that there really is. And, any, and that's one of the reasons I really think we have to get together with academia who can do legitimate research because our industry really doesn't have the time. And um, so you look at theater, they already know that they don't have to make the character real. Mm -hmm. They just have to make it, they have to make the character someone that you can relate to. And we have to take those ideals and put them into video games for gameplay, for art, for whatever we have to do. Can I relate to that character? Can, you know, what is it about that character that I like? And I think... You know, theater does that extremely well. So, make sense? Yes. Um, so when you were talking about your the Nordic mytholo mythology um, and how everything, you know, that you thought about, you know, went back into supporting this notion of story in Nordic mythology and the music did and the architecture did and um, all these things. And, and one thing I found very striking was that one thing you did not specifically describe in those terms was the interaction. Um, yeah. Did you actually, did you think about, you know, what Absolutely. it would mean to, to have an interaction style that supported Nordic mythology? Did you think about... We did. Yeah. Okay, well, then I'll stop talking and you can. Oh, no, no. Um, <laughs> well, if you, looked, if you looked at the intro and you had some of the, the wolf troopers or the Ulsarks, um, their helmets were actually, if you looked at them really carefully, were in the shape of a wolf head. And when those visors came up, so, you know... So the armor that they, that they have, did you notice they're carrying axes? And you notice Balder has a sword and a gun. And when you're talking about a high-tech world where we have mass drivers, lasers, um, the whole idea of visceral melee combat um, is all about you know, Nordic legend. And the whole idea of, um, you, you heard it briefly, in, in Nordic mythology, if you die in battle, you go to Valhalla, you're picked up by a Valkyrie, and you go to Valhalla and, and wait with Odin for the coming of Ragnarok. And all of that is into human. And if you notice the one wolf trooper that died, died the Valkyrie came down, and Valkyries were described as with wings, and, and so we have these heavily cybernetically enhanced women coming down, picking up you know, people through singularity effects and taking them to another dimension to wait for the coming of Ragnarok. So we did, we did try to do that as much as we could. So all the combat and the type of melee combat that we did, we, we studied what it was like. And um, they used to have, there's this one scene, and, and uh, I can't show it right now. Well, I could show it, but it would take too long, um, where there's this, 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 this fight going on, and there's these doors. I don't know if you even notice some of the doors into human. They open up in the shape of Nordic runes, a rune of power. That's how those doors open. That's a rune, a Norse rune. And, but so anyway, in those doors... 
the Vikings used to have this technique where they would half open a door and they make the doors really low so people would have to crawl under them and then wait with axes and then, you know, take their heads off. And so we have that in some of the fight scenes. And it's just, it's like, yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, we can, we can justify it really quickly and say, well, that's what they used to do back in the, the times of the Vikings. Um, so, so we did. We did. We did the best we could knowing that we had to make the game good, knowing that we had to make it entertaining. So to some extent... Um, to some extent, you know, you have to take liberties, and it's a science fiction. And um, that um, it's it's funny when we start talking about these things. So trying to justify them, um, there's this whole. Has anyone ever heard of green glass? So this is a bit of conspiracy theory, and I'm not saying this is valid. To so be really clear, I don't want, I don't want people blogging saying Dennis really is crazy. Um, so um, when they're doing nuclear tests in the desert. Um, what they, they do it on the sand, um, this, the, the actual silicon of the sand would melt into this stuff that they call green glass. And the interesting, there's a several interesting things about green glass. The first one is, is its, it's half-life is a day, so it loses all its radioactivity within one day. And the only way that they know that this stuff is formed, is my understanding, and I haven't done a lot of research into this, is through a nuclear explosion. Like an, an atomic warhead, nothing else can do it. A meteor, there's nothing hot enough. It has to be really, really hot. And so, when I, and this is one of the upcoming diaries, I talk about green glass or black glass. Some people call it black glass. The interesting thing about that is they claim they found black glass on Egyptian, Egyptian artifacts in, in burial chambers. And it's all kinds of conspiracy theory. And I, I have not yet seen this confirmed. So this is the idea of cyclic history, and this is so. And there's, 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 there's. I did a blog on it, and there's, there's wars that talk about. Uh, there's, there's ancient scripts that are like, three thousand years old, and I think it's called the Ramadan or something, or um, they're Indian, uh, ancient India, uh, books, and um, I, I'm forgetting the name, but they talk about a war between Atlantis and India, and they describe nuclear fallout or something that looks a heck of a lot like nuclear fallout, and it's really, really interesting stuff. And whether it's true or not, it sure is entertaining. <laughs> and and uh, so that's the approach we took with the Norse mythology. So all you need is this sort of a little bit of rationale so people can get the suspensions of the disbelief away. So the whole idea of the wolf trooper just holding that axe when they have a particle gun, they could probably cream anything that really came close, but they have that axe just in case. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of things that we try to, to do with it. So. So, so when uh, uh, when you describe the idea of like, so when people coming from Norse mythology, when people die in battle, the Valkyrie comes and takes them away, and then they basically have to sort of just sit up there. It's like it's like you're hitting in dodgeball and you're out. Yes. And um, and then you're just like, okay, well, I gotta wait till the game's over. Um, so you know, so be, so it's sort of like, so so being a, a warrior in Odin's army, sort of like playing you know Counter Strike or something, right? Uh, like Harrier. You, you get killed, and then it's just like okay, but. That doesn't happen when you die into human. Well, so there's a big difference between a human dying and a god dying. And our whole storyline actually revolves around that and what happens. And if the one thing you're going to look at in Norse mythology is when you look at the character Baldur, so many people have said, why did you choose Baldur? <coughs> the only thing that Baldur does in Norse mythology that's significant is he dies. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that. That's it. Down, 
What's that? Is that Actually, no, actually, I think that's Loki. Early, earlier in the, earlier in this uh, earlier in this uh, in this talk, I, I was I was uh, you know wikiing the the characters and and we were looking up uh, was it Hode who was, Hode who was blind? Yes. he is in fact blind. The, he is blind. Wiki says so. So yes, he is. Um, <laughs> Therefore, it must be true. But uh, but uh, the internet says so. So um, but it says and it says that he you know he, he uh, anyway. So yeah, but it did. We we found, we found out that you, you know, won't you won't give any spoilers away. I promise. Okay, well, it's not nothing you can do. But all I got to do is read the mythology. It's just yeah. all here, right? So, it won't you won't spoil anything. So go so, ahead and say so, it. So uh, so it says that Hode kills Balder, um, uh-huh. according. But I was just thinking, so, but does that mean in the cinematic where he's about to kill him, can you just shoot him? <laughs> like, like in the, like in the, in the cinematic? The so, no, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. And uh, Han Solo shot first, that's all I remember. Um, the, um, so when we created these interactive cinemas, and I, I hope I said it here, but I think we're taking baby steps. You have to allow interactivity, but you still have to tell your story. So if suddenly, as an example, say, we're, say such a cinema even existed, um, um, if we allowed that, we'd then have to change the entire, entire story at that point and fork out. And then if you had all of these major divergent points, you start getting into this exponential explosion of possibilities. And... Um, In our opinion, that's bad storytelling. And there, once upon a time, I guess a long time ago anyway, I remember them when I was younger, but these, these books that you would leave, choose your own adventure books. That's right, we did talk about it, that's right. Um, yeah, let's not bring up the other part. Um, but uh, when people played the, like when you read those books, they they were interesting at first, but they were really terrible, horrible stories. And it's really, um, if you allowed for that type of divergence, you really have a hard time with your metaphors and what you're trying. If you can do it, awesome. If you can somehow create a story that splits off and still has the same meaning, that's fantastic. But I, I, I just, uh, so much work, I wouldn't even know where to start. So in, in those particular key points, we, we tend not to give control. So not everything's completely interactive. Do you, is, is, there, is there sort of a, a, an explanation to the player, like which cinematics are interactive and which are not? No. So you, you just like mash the buttons all the time, and then sometimes you'll just so, 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 well, so, sometimes so you'll be like you'll be like whoa, you know, I just killed that guy, and then other times you'll. <laughs> Well, no. Um, well, actually, that's not true. Your HUD comes up. Okay, so, so the HUD is an indicator. The, the HUD's an indicator. Um, the other thing is if Baldur's in the cinema at all. Mm-hmm. So when we first started thinking about this, trying to do this whole idea, the first problem was, what do you do when Baldur's not in the cinema? Or do we only have cinemas where Baldur's involved? This is what, so this is a pet peeve of mine. When we first started, when Barry first started working with the company, my first question was, Barry, first person, third person. Which one is more immersive? And his answer was so succinct, it surprised me. He was like, well, film tried to do first person uh, movies at first, but then they found after a while that you couldn't see the reflection on the characters' faces. You couldn't really get involved. So they threw it out after a while, and they they abandoned first person as a medium and moved more towards third person because they could tell better stories. And 
That was it. That's all he said. And I just went, wow, we're making third-person games from now on. And when you look at games like Half-Life, which are excellent games, and they have all these people talking to you, and you can't say anything, I hate that. I hate it. It just pulls me out every time. I have no character. And, um, and I think that that medium of storytelling is very, very difficult. Or if they start having voices for, from a first-person perspective, there was a, a, a school of thought in video games for a while that first-person was more immersive for some reason, and I don't agree. I don't, I don't even understand why people think that except, except for that Doom was so good. And when I did my talk in 1996, I, boy, did I make a boo-boo. I didn't realize what I was saying. It was, it was a joke. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to attack the id guys. But I said, if you concentrate on technology, because I, I talked about technology becoming less important, I said, you'll be doomed. And um, a lot of people thought that I was attacking id. But what I was saying is, really, you can only concentrate on technology so much. And I said that I don't think, even back then, that you know, first person is that, you know, the only way to go. And back then, so much venture capital was being pulled, ported into these new engines and these first person. So it really, it really made a lot of people angry. And I guess my evaluation scores on the talk, and it was on engagement theory, um, scored really low. And uh, you know, it might have been too academic for the conference, too, apparently. So they, they don't like that stuff too much at GDC, the game developer. Game demo con uh, convention. So, <laughs> so uh, I think we have to wrap up, and yeah. um, and uh, we have a reception after this over at Henry's place. So I guess we'll all be heading over on mass. Um, I'd like to thank Dennis again for for coming over. Thank you.